Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Um, as you probably saw as you came in, part of our plan for worship together this morning is to take the Lord's Supper together. And hopefully you didn't sit on that when you sat down, but you did see it before you sat down. Um, but we're going to do that at the end of the teaching time and right before uh, Keith and the worship team come to lead us in worship through song. And I just thought that this week, I wanted you to know that up front because I thought we would just focus our whole teaching time, uh, in a sense, on the Lord's Supper and just begin right now all the way till we take it to direct our hearts and our minds toward the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we walk through what we're going to walk through, um, just know that we're headed in that direction. And I hope that it stirs up uh, worship in you and, and a, a depth of, of love and faith and appreciation for what God has done for us in Jesus. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16 today which may sound like a strange place to be for the Lord's Supper, um, but that is where we're going to be, Leviticus chapter 16. And I've pulled out a few different sections of Leviticus 16. We're going to start in verse 6 here in a few minutes. But before we do, I wanted to read just the beginning of a, a prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. You go ahead and turn to Leviticus 16. And each week we talk about this approach to studying the Bible that we would talk to God in prayer, acknowledging our need for God to teach us and do a spiritual work during this time, and that any time that we would come to him in the Bible, in this room together, in our personal lives, with other people throughout the week, that we need his spirit to do something that only he can do. And so we come to him acknowledging our need, acknowledging our dependence, and asking him to do that. And then we come to encounter God in his word, that we want the focus to be on God in the Bible, that we're coming to the Bible to hear what God would say to us about himself, what God would teach us about himself, and then what God would teach us about us in relation to him, both what we're like without him and what we're like with him, that we would examine our hearts, believing that God wants to do something more than just put information in our minds, and he even wants to do something more than just change our behavior, but he wants to change us from the inside out, to change who we are as Jesus lives in us by his spirit and gives us his heart and his love and his life and lives through us. And then that we would end by talking to God again, acknowledging that if any of this is actually going to happen as we go and live this out, that he's going to have to do it, and that we would talk to others as well and the things that God is giving to us that we would share with others, the things that God's filling us with that we would pour out to others. And so we've built that around this acronym text just to make it easy to remember. But I want you to hear right here the beginning of the book of Ephesians when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He prays a prayer for them, which I feel like even that's significant to where we're starting right here, that he writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, as I'm going to teach you teach the whole church, even as an apostle who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm praying for God to do something that only he can do. And he says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so do you hear right there in that prayer in Ephesians 1, this first piece where he's saying, I know I'm writing to you right now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching you about who God is, but I pray that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation because if he doesn't do that, none of this will work. <laughs> if he doesn't open your eyes spiritually, if he doesn't soften your heart spiritually, so I'm asking him to do what only he can do, and then listen to the reason why, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And that's the second piece. It's not that so you'll have more information or more knowledge. It's not so that your behavior will change, you'll be a good church member. It's so that you will know God better. That Paul wrote Ephesians to the church at Ephesus so they would know God more. That they would come to him in this letter, in the Bible, and they would encounter God in his word. And as we keep going, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. 
Paul's clearly saying, I want this to go deeper than just your mind, deeper than just your behavior. It will change your mind. It will change how you think. It'll change your behavior. It'll change how you live because it gets to the very core of your heart that God would do something, a spiritual work in your heart. And then he continues in this prayer. And if we flip over to chapter three, there's a whole nother prayer. And we may spend some more time on both of them next week that he keeps praying that God will do this work and build his church and then that they will be the church making God known in the world. And, um, and I wanted to start there this morning just to show you again that this isn't something text is an acronym that Pastor Michael came up with that we use to help us think about how to study the Bible. But it's not something the principles of it, the concepts of it aren't something that we've just made up and said, hey, let's do that. The idea is this is how the Bible tells us to study the Bible. This is how God tells us to come and know him. It's what he tells us that we need to do to hear from him. And we trust him. We believe when he says this is the way to do it, this is the way we want to do it. And so that's what we're doing each week. Um, And I want you to know I've prayed both of these prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3 uh, for us this morning. Uh, There's a group of guys in my life that I guess it's been maybe two and a half years ago um, that we all agreed that we would start praying these two prayers each day. Uh, for each other, that God would do this in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that he would reveal himself to us in this way and help us know him better. And so we may walk through one and three as a whole next week, the, the two prayers there, but I just want to start today with that as just the intro of this is why we're studying the Bible this way this morning. And so here in just a minute, when I read this section of Leviticus 16, I want you to be asking, what's this teach us about God? As he opens my eyes to see him, to encounter him, to know him better in the truth of his word. What's this teach us about God? And in light of who God is, what's he teaching us about us? What's he saying to our hearts? How's he working in our hearts? What's he challenging, encouraging, comforting, changing, convicting, all the things that he would do inside of us, but all grounded in because this is who he is. And so I'm gonna pray for us right now and ask him to do that. And then we'll jump into Leviticus 16. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have spoken and revealed yourself to us and made yourself known so clearly and so faithfully. And we ask that right now, by your spirit, you will teach us from the truth of your word, that you will open up the Bible to us and you will open us up to the Bible that we might know you better. Father, I pray that this time will be about you, that it will be about who you are and how we need you and it will be about your work and your power and your grace by your spirit to accomplish your purposes. And we confess, Father, I confess that I cannot make that happen, that I can't do that in my own heart, let alone anybody else's heart. But we know that you can, and we know that you do, and we trust you to do it because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so we come to you in Jesus' name right now, and we ask you to do this work in us as only you can for your purposes, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 6. Um, and I want you to listen for anything God's saying to you about who he is. But I am going to tell you up front here that as we head towards the Lord's Supper, these two goats there in verse 7, we're going to track through Leviticus 16, what God teaches us from these two goats. And so if you want to be kind of zeroed in on that, uh, feel free to do that. But I do want God to speak to you as you hear out of this chapter. So Leviticus 16, starting in verse 6. And these are instructions from God to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He's forming them into a nation, keeping a promise that he had made 400 years earlier to Abraham. He's forming them into a nation. Moses is leading them. Aaron is the very first priest, the first high priest of the nation. And God's given instructions right now for when your people have sinned, every year on a certain day, we call the Day of Atonement now, every year on the Day of Atonement, 
Aaron, the high priest, is going to be able to offer sacrifices as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so that's what we're reading about right now. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And then if you want to skip down to verse 15 with me. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. When Aaron has finished making atonement, this is verse 20 now, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Now, I know we jumped in like in the middle of the book of Leviticus and in the middle of this story in the Old Testament, and there's all sorts of details that we could explain more. But I really think, as always, the main thought is, what does this teach us about God? And so, without going into all the details, what jumps out to you, first of all? What's this section right here teach us about God? Who he is, how he works, how he deals with his people. Um, and then also, in relation to him, what does it teach us about us? I threw you a curveball today, I know. Okay, God is holy. You want to... Expand it all. Tell us why you said that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So, one thing going on here to show God's holiness is that He comes to the people, and He, you know, He's had them build the tabernacle. And then inside the, the big traveling tent where his presence dwells, the, 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 the pillar of fire and smoke that had led them out of Egypt and protected them when they were trapped at the Red Sea, just the whole story where it's represented his presence. When they build the tabernacle, in the middle is the Holy of Holies, like this tent inside a tent. And inside that is the, the mercy seat or the, 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 the atonement place. And he has come to dwell visibly like where they can see his presence He's come to dwell in that place. And he says, nobody can come in except one person once a year in this one place into my presence. You know, a lot of exclusion here. One person, the high priest, once a year on the day of atonement can come into this one place in my presence. That there is something about God separating him from us. And that's what holy actually means, to be set apart that he's different than us, other than us, separate from us because of his perfection and his righteousness and his goodness, that there is no sin in him, there is no wickedness in him, there is no darkness in him, and there is in us. And so there is this separation. And then also, the other thing that I, uh, popped in my head as soon as you said this, Carol, is that the way that he deals with sin here, that there's death for sin and there's a casting out of sin. Do you hear that the two goats... Uh, I know we just read it, and I'll tune you into it because there's a lot of truths flow out of it. But one of these goats gets slaughtered, sacrificed because of sin, killed, punished for sin. The other one gets cast away, out and driven out of the camp, 
away from the people of God, away from the presence of God because of sin. That the holiness of God punishes sin and the holiness of God casts sin away out of his presence. Do you see that with those two goats? So yeah, God is holy as a starting place. What else? Truths about God. I said a bunch more right there, by the way, but I'll let you say them. <laughs> ah, there we go. God provides a way for forgiveness. One of the things that really stands out to me about this section, when you think about Leviticus, those of you, you know, that you know kind of how the Bible has been put together, what section of the Bible is Leviticus in? People are saying stuff, but I'm just hearing mumbles. <laughs> Sorry, that's my fault. Pentateuch, first five books, sometimes called Torah, and in English, What's like the main word we use for that section? Law. Like when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. So this is the law. Like, and I feel like this is really, really significant right here. When I think of law, I, I think of God standing up here and us being down here. And he's like, here are the rules for what you've got to do. You've got to live up to this. And then also I think of, and here's how you'll be judged when you don't. Or that's what the law does tells us what we should be and what's going to happen when we're not that. But do you realize that in the middle of the law itself, God is making laws about, here's how I'll forgive you for your sin. Here's how I'll take your sin away. Here's how I'll kill a substitute in your place for your sin. This, this goat will die as a sin offering for you. This goat will be cast away instead of you. God's laws aren't just about the rules that we ought to live up to and don't. They are about that. Because here's the deal. If you don't know that, you don't need Leviticus 16. If you don't know that God really is holy and really does have a standard that you don't live up to, you don't need a sin offering. You don't need a scapegoat. The law shows you why you need Leviticus 16, but then... When the law shows you why you need Leviticus 16, within the law, God says, I'll give you what you now see that you need. The law shows you that you need forgiveness because you are a sinner. And then within the law, God says, and I'll make a way for there to be forgiveness. So God provides a way for forgiveness. What else? Forgiveness. Or a sin offering, was the phrase here, requires blood. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. What else? Hmm. God continually pursues God always gives us the way to come back. That's so good. Like, he, he's assuming here from the very beginning, you are going to sin against me. You are going to wander away from me. You are going to separate yourself from me with your own sin. And instead of me either leaving you there, number one, or instead of me saying, well, you messed it up, you figured out a way to get it better. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you the way. I'm going to come and get you in your sin, and I'm going to make a way for you to be made right with me. Here's the way for you to come back. And it's the way that I've made for you, the way that I've revealed to you. What else? One more just really burning in your heart and mind right now that you want to say before I... Because you know once I start, you don't get nearly as much time. Sure, let's do a question. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. I'm sorry, by the way, on the live stream. I know that you don't hear when they're talking, and I don't think that I can just like, repeat that verbatim. So we're going to dive in, and you can just assume the question's about the relationship between what just happened here in the Old Testament with God dwelling you know, in a sense, physically, where they could physically witness his presence in one place in the camp versus Jesus living inside of us now all the time. And this sacrifice repeated year after year versus we, when we take the Lord's Supper now, we're observing the broken body of Jesus and the cup representing the blood of Jesus that was a once-for-all sacrifice. And the first thing I would say is you are all over the book of Hebrews right now. The way that the book of Hebrews takes what God taught us as an illustration and an example in the Old Testament that was always pointing toward the fullness and the fulfillment in Jesus. And that while this stuff is good, and we've stood up here and said all sorts of good things that we learn about God from Leviticus 16, it's good, but that Jesus is always better. That what God was doing here, he did even better in Jesus. He did more. That Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus is the fullness. And so, yes, things like, and I'm not even going to write these down right now because I'm going to say them really fast, that before one person, once a year, one place in the presence of God, now everyone, all the time, always welcomed into the presence of God in Jesus. And before, one person having to offer this sacrifice year after year after year after year, that it never actually took care of it. The way Hebrews says it is it actually became a reminder of sins because every year they had to come back and do it again. Jesus has offered a once-for-all sacrifice that takes care of all your sins forever, that he never has to die again for your sins. That when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of what he's already done, that it is finished. And that's so much better than, I've got to come back and do this again. Not to mention that Aaron had to come, you saw at the very beginning, Aaron's to offer the bull for his own sin offering. So you've got this sinner coming who needs an offering for his sin offering, and then he presents the offering for the people. Jesus comes needing no offering for his sin offering. Jesus comes as the perfect high priest. Jesus comes as the one who can come directly into the presence of God with no sin offering because he is welcome into the presence of God, because he is perfect. He is sinless. He always has access to God. And then he himself is the sin offering. It's not just two goats now, or as Hebrews, it's not the, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. It is the son of God himself, an infinitely valuable sacrifice that the blood of Jesus is worth more than all of us combined. It's why it can cover all of us combined. And so the first thing you're, you're tapping into here is, yes, absolutely. Like there's connection. Like there are, there are lessons that we can learn. And the New Testament often talks about the Old Testament as an example, an illustration. It's a teaching tool where God was creating categories so that he could then come and fill those categories up with Jesus that we would understand what he was doing in Jesus because he had shown us for thousands of years what he was going to do. And so the Old Testament is certainly connected to the New Testament. The New Testament is the fullness and the fulfillment of it, but also it is the fullness. It's like this is the acorn, Leviticus 16, and Jesus is the oak tree. And there's a connection between the two. One does grow out of the other, but also nobody would look at the oak tree and say, oh, well, that's exactly the same as the acorn. There is more to it. There's a fullness to it that's not there in seed form. So that's the first thing I would say. And then just to build on it, because the question that, that I think you're asking is tied to everything that I really want us to see today with these two goats. And so let me just add, and we've said these, but I'm going to write these down in case for those of you that really like to take notes. One of the things that stood out to me, and, and Carol said this with God is holy, but God punishes sin. the way it deserves. You notice that he doesn't take their sin lightly. And he doesn't say, oh, it's, it's okay, we'll just, no big deal. It's not really that bad. Or, 
or, you know, we'll just, we'll pretend it didn't happen. There is no sweeping it under the rug. There is no, we'll just, if that's in the past, let the past, like it has to be dealt with somehow. And he's saying that sin deserves death. It must be dealt with with death. And in his justice, in his holiness, as we talked about in the book of James the last three weeks, that he is the one true lawgiver and judge. He really does sit up here in justice and he looks and he says, this is the right verdict about this. And so I have to say that. It is sin and sin deserves death. And so the verdict is death for this sin. Like God punishes sin the way it deserves. But then at the very same time, God forgives sinners. The the Israelites are the people who had sinned here and he's punishing their sin, but he's punishing these goats instead of them. He's forgiving them for their sin while he punishes their sin. And see both of those. See the justice and the grace there. God cleanses sinners Notice this language down here. He has delayed, verse 21, both hands on the head of the live goat and confessed over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. When he puts their sins on the goat's head, what's that mean for the Israelites? Just real logically here. If their sins are on the goat, what's that mean for them? Their sins aren't on them anymore, right? Like part of the aspect of forgiveness isn't just, yeah, I'll kill the, part of the aspect of forgiveness is this, I'll kill this goat in your place. There's a penalty, a punishment that you owe. And instead of you having to pay the debt, this goat will pay the debt for you. That's part of forgiveness. But that's not all of it. The other part is God says, your actual sin, I will take it off of you and put it on this goat so that it's not on you anymore. I will cleanse you of your sin. I'll pay your debt for you. That's goat number one. I'll take your sin away from you. That's goat number two. Do you see how incredible this is? Like when God looks at you now, He does not look at you as, yeah, you're a sinner, but we've kind of played this little game and I paid for you and so I won't treat you like a sinner. That's not how he looks at you. When God looks at you in Jesus, if you are trusting Jesus and you have put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, God looks at you as, you're not a sinner anymore because I took it off of you. He does not see your sin when he looks at you because he took your sin off of you and put it on Jesus. And he's showing us that with this, that he actually has cleansed. You are clean. You are pure. You are made right and made new. It's gone from you. It is not who you are now. Do you see that? Forgive sinners. Cleanse the sinners. God accepts a substitute. This is huge. Like what if in the law, God said, here is my law. My my character and nature revealed to you says this, whoever sins has to pay the price for that sin. Whoever sins will be condemned for that sin. And that's the only way. Now that is one way. You sin, you can pay the price for your sin. But within the law itself, God is already revealing there's another way, another way that's consistent with his character, a way that's consistent both with his justice and with his mercy, both with his righteousness and with his grace, where he says, but also someone else can come pay for you. The debt has to be paid. My holiness, my justice demands it, but my mercy and my grace says that someone else can pay it for you, and I'll accept that. As long as the debt is paid, as long as sin is punished the way it deserves to be punished, it can be the sinner or it can be a substitute. And from the very beginning in the law, he's revealed to us, he accepts a substitute in our place. He's willing to accept a substitute in our place. I also wrote this down. I know we've talked about it. So God removes sin from his presence. 
Again, we're not trying to minimize the way he did. Like this goat has to be cast out. The sin of the people cannot dwell there with him. It is impossible for the sin of the people to stay in the presence of God and not be consumed by the fire of his holiness. It must be cast out. But again, he lets a substitute be cast out for them. And that's why this last one that I wrote down, God, so God removes sin from his presence. God allows sinners into his presence. Praise God that he does. I mean, first of all, Aaron, the high priest himself, can't even walk into the Holy of Holies without saying, I've got to kill a bull for my own sin. I can't even begin to take care of the sins of the people until I take care of my own sin. But yet this sinner who needs a sacrifice for his sin, God still says, in my law, I'm telling you, come into my presence because I will accept that sacrifice, this blood sacrifice as a substitute in your place and make a way for you to come to me even though you're a sinner. And then for all the people, yeah, their sin has to be removed. It has to be cast out, but they don't have to be cast out. I will make a way to cast out their sin while still welcoming welcoming them to me as my people. Do you see that in these two goats? So, to kind of bring all this together as we head towards the Lord's Supper, I want to use two big words. And I know we don't do this very often, like these kind of theology terms. And it's because the words aren't nearly as important as the concept. But if these two words this morning help us grasp these two concepts of what God is doing for us in Jesus, then they're worthwhile. But I'd much rather you have the concepts than the words, all right? But I'm going to write them down. Propitiation. I think I wrote bigger and neater. You all told me that sometimes I write too small or too sloppy. Maybe you can see that one since it's... And I know these aren't like words we use a lot. And then expiation. These two words, in a lot of ways, correspond with the two things we see with these two goats this morning. And they certainly give us a great description of what God does for us in Jesus. And I'm going to pull them apart for just a minute for us to talk about them separately, but I also want to encourage you that they're wed together in Jesus. There's a lot of overlap between them, and don't dissect them in a way that you murder them. All right, we're going to look at them separately, but they come together. And so propitiation, the general idea, is to satisfy a deity. It could also be a person, and in our case, we mean the real God. And the reason I say a deity is because you see this through all sorts of other religions, non-Christian religions, religions of the world, this attempt to satisfy the gods or to satisfy God and the idea that the gods are angry at us or, you know, when you're talking about, and we have to do something now to earn their favor, to, to satisfy them, to satisfy their wrath, to satisfy their anger, to satisfy their justice, whatever concept it is, to appease them. But when you come to the one true God, the difference between every other religion in the world and Christianity is every other religion in the world says you need to do something. Either be good enough, work hard enough, offer enough sacrifices, do something extreme enough, zealous enough to satisfy your God or gods. Christianity says there's nothing you can do and God has done it himself. God satisfies himself. He sends Jesus to satisfy. Even in the Old Testament, God's saying, I'll give you the law for what will satisfy me, and it still won't be you. It'll be these two goats. It'll be this bull. It'll be like all the different sacrifices. And so one of the places you see this in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. There's our word. And notice, he did it. God's wrath had to be satisfied. Sin has to be punished. The justice of God has to be satisfied. Sin has to be dealt with the way it deserves for God to be right and holy and true. And so God looks at it and says it has to be done, but who's going to do it? You or him? 
Every other religion in the world says you. And Christianity says him. God says, I will do it for you. My justice requires something of you. I'll give to you what I require of you. God sent his son to satisfy God's justice and wrath against our sins. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And this is that first goat, the sin offering goat, the goat that's slaughtered, that, that his blood is shed, that there has to be a punishment and a payment for sin. A debt is owed, death is owed, and death is given through the substitute of this goat that's sacrificed. Now, expiation is more like removal, cleansing, in the language we've used today, casting out of sin. And the way to kind of pro means to or toward or for, like something had to be given to God or done toward God to satisfy God's justice. And the sacrifice of Jesus toward God satisfies his justice. Ex, think of the word exit, out, out from. The sin's gotta be removed, gotten rid of, taken care of. We have to be cleansed from the sin itself. Same book, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Takes it up, the stain is gone. The impurity is gone. Jesus actually washes away your sin, removes your sin. Do you see expiation in that verse? That yes, he, he dies in our place to satisfy God's justice against our sin, number one. But then also, number two, he actually removes our sin from us, cleanses us of our sin. One more spot just to see it in a little more in depth. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, certainly in Romans But it doesn't actually stop there. I know we stop there in the Romans road, but listen to this next part. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, so again, just the idea that we are wrong. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We are wrong with God and something has to happen to make us right with God because he is a true and righteous and holy and just judge. And when he looks at you, he has to say sinner because you are. And then he has to say you deserve death because that's true. And so something has to satisfy that justice. And so God sends Jesus to satisfy his justice. But if I were to write this sentence down right here and I Give me the honest first answers that pop in your mind, okay? And I'll tell you mine. There's two of them that I think we would all say. The cross shows God's blank. What's the first thing you think of when you think of the cross? It shows God's what? Okay, mercy. What does somebody else say? Love. I got one more word. Grace. All right. If you all want to know just in my head, grace, love are the first two that pop in my head. But Shows God's mercy, love, and it's absolutely true. Listen to this next verse in Romans. All right, when he sent Jesus to be a propitiation by his blood, this was to show God's what? Righteousness. What's going on right there? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There were all sorts of sins that hadn't been punished yet the way they deserved. David has an affair with Bathsheba, covers it up, murders her husband, lies about it for nearly a year. The prophet Nathan comes to him, confronts him. David says, you're right, I did that, and now I'm going to die. And Nathan says, you're not going to die. The Lord has taken away your sin. It's a great moment 
for this. But what if you're Uriah's mom? The king murdered your son and God says it's okay? What kind of God is that? What kind of judge is that? Do you see what's at stake here? The very holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness that God would be right and truthful and true. And sometimes in our world today, we want God to look at our sins and everybody says, that's okay. But that's what's at stake. The name of God himself, the care, that God would be God. He cannot do that. Otherwise, we have to look at God and say, you're a liar. It's not okay. It's awful. But God, in his wisdom, has said, no, there's a way for me to take David's sin away, to show mercy and grace to David. And David doesn't know the fullness of it yet. He's got these shadows of sacrifices in the Old Testament. But the son of the son of the son of the son of David is coming. And I'm going to put all David's sin on him. And he'll pay for every bit of it. And the full wrath of God will be poured out on all of that sin at the cross. And God's justice, his righteousness will be demonstrated. It'll be shown this is what God does to sin. Sin deserves this and God does this to sin. God brutalized his own son so that he wouldn't have to brutalize you. God crushed his own son so that he wouldn't have to crush you. He did it without compromising his righteousness and his justice. It's because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both of these things. He might be just. He deals with sin the way it deserves to be dealt with. And he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He'll deal with your sin. He'll be just in the way he deals with your sin, but then he'll be merciful in the way he deals with you. The cross is mercy and love and grace toward us. It's also God's justice toward our sin, God's righteousness toward our sin. One more place in Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, like we've read about this morning, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, this external act with these animals being sacrificed, how much more, how much more, Jesus is so much better, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, the perfect sacrifice to God, purify internally, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's propitiation in Romans 3, expiation here in Hebrews 9, that he will purify us to our very core. He purifies your heart, that he takes your sin away and takes it on himself. 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. A price has to be paid. Jesus pays it instead of you, a substitute. But then there's still the guilt, the stain remains. It has to be taken away. The sin itself has to be taken away. And Jesus takes your sin on himself, removes it from you. He becomes your scapegoat. He's cast out from the Father so that you don't have to be. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment. That's the moment when he no longer can feel the presence of God because he's separated from God by your sin and mine. Cast out with our sin on him like this scapegoat into the wilderness of God's wrath so that you can draw near to God, so that you can be made right with God, so that God can receive you and welcome you and love you with open arms. A couple of quick illustrations just to try to get both these concepts. You think about it financially in our world today, that you go into bankruptcy 
and there's this debt you can't pay. And somebody comes along in grace and says, I'm going to pay your debt for you. And imagine they pay everything you owe. Okay? But you, you had already filed bankruptcy. Your credit score is in shambles. They pay off what you owe. Now you try to rebuild your life. What happens when somebody runs your credit report? The label's still there, right? The, the, the brokenness of the past. You're still labeled as, they've taken care of the debt, but they haven't taken care of the stain yet. You see that this has to be, that who you are has to be changed. Jesus paid the debt, but then he says, no, I'm taking the label. You're not this anymore. I'll be this for you. Same way, if you were a convicted felon and you go to prison and you, you serve the time, right? Here's your penalty. Here's the price you have to pay for your crime. You serve that time. Your debt's been paid. This time you paid it for yourself. They release you. You go to start applying for jobs and what happens? They run a background check and it's still there. You paid the price, but you're still a felon. And Jesus says, no. First of all, I'll go to prison for you. I'll pay the debt for you. And then also, I'll take the label from you. I'll become sin for you. I'll be the felon in your place. And you'll have a clean record, a clean slate. All the labels, listen to me, all the labels that run around in your mind, all the things that you say, this is who I am because of what I've done in Jesus, by faith in Jesus, God says, that's not who you are. It's gone. I have taken it away. I have taken it off of you and I have made you new and I've made you clean and I've made you right. You don't owe me any debt, but there's also no kind of relational damage between us. Right? The, the price has been paid, but also your sin has been cast away. So you don't have to be cast away. You're in perfect fellowship and relationship with God because of Jesus, because God looks at you. And now the judge can say, innocent, righteous, right with me, welcomed into my presence. That's what God can say about you because it's all gone. Everything that would separate you from God is gone in Jesus once and for all. Through faith in his blood, you have to believe in him. That there's a, there's a spiritual connection that's created by trusting Jesus, by believing in Jesus. And that's where this transfer happens, that God transfers your sin to Jesus. And he pays for it. And he carries it off into the wilderness. And God transfers the righteousness of Jesus to you. And now it's really yours. And he can see you that way. And he can call you that. And he can welcome you that way. And so the last thing I think that's implied here for us all through Leviticus 16, it's, it's so on the surface that we would miss it, is we have to acknowledge our sin. Like the very act of Aaron coming in and sacrificing that bull is, yes, I have sin. And yes, it's this bad that something has to die. And yes, the people have sin. And yes, we need it to be dealt with and we can't bear the burden of dealing with it for ourselves. I can't bear to pay this price for myself. I can't bear to, to be cast away on my own. I, my sin is so bad to God, I need help in dealing with it. And I confess the price is more than I can bear. And so then we ask for mercy. And this is why the most dangerous thing that you could ever do is pretend that you're okay. You're not okay. There's stuff in your heart and in your life that you need God to deal with, but he's already told you he's dealing with it in Jesus. And so just admit it. God, this is who I am. This is where I am. I bring it to you and I confess it and I trust you to deal with it in Jesus and I thank you that you have. But you've got to believe that that's who you are and that's who he is. And you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to confess it. And I was thinking about how does this define our relationship with God and with each other? If we were to play out practically with God, I want you to hear this this morning. In Jesus, if you are one with Jesus, you are trusting Jesus, following Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus has covered you, 
in Jesus, God is never angry with you, ever. I know that some of us, every time we mess up, every time we stumble, every time we fall, man, God must be so disappointed, so angry, so this, so frustrated. That is gone forever in Jesus. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. God is never going to punish you again. All your sin has been placed on Jesus, past, present, and future. He took it all. Nothing that happens to you, if you are a believer, nothing that happens to you in your life is punishment from God. Now, there may be discipline, and by discipline, I mean teaching, correcting, changing. Like he's shaping you into who he wants you to be. He's leading you out of these wrong, sinful habits into the right place. But not because it's punishment, not because you owe him a price, because it's grace and mercy and love, and he knows that this is the place you need to be, and he's helping you get there. But to see that, to see the worst things that happen in our life and say, this isn't because God's angry, and this isn't punishment, because Jesus already took care of that. In this right now, God loves me. In this right now, God has grace for me. In this right now, God is working his purposes in Jesus. And I'm not trying to like make this small. I'm talking the worst thing you ever go through. In Jesus, God turns it into grace and mercy and he will work it together for good. And I'm talking about the worst thing you ever do. In Jesus, he is not angry with you. You're right with him. He's taken all those labels and he's removed them. Everything that you would hear the world say to you, everything the enemy says to you, everything you say in your own head about you, he doesn't say it about you. He cast it away. He's changed it. He's renamed you. He's made you new in Jesus. And if we really believe that, that affects the way that we love other people. I kept thinking about as a parent this week, and so parents, grandparents, but it's every relationship kept thinking about with my daughters, do I discipline them in a way that shows them the gospel? And the main thing I thought about is how with parents, there's times we have to come in and discipline to show them they're wrong, to show them, to teach them. But then after I deal with that, do I treat them like there's relational distance? Is there a relational punishment after the fact? Because there's not with God. There's not. Like, my love for them can pay the price. My love for them says, yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to teach. I'm going to discipline. But we're okay. We're always okay forever. That when you sin, when you mess up, it doesn't mean, hey, we're far apart. You're cast away. Now, when you sin, when you mess up, there's love and grace and mercy here, and it means you can come and you confess it and you can tell me the truth, and immediately, we're okay. And then I was thinking about with the relationships with other people, and this is the last, very last thing. We'll take the Lord's Supper together, and I'm gonna leave this for God to work in your hearts, in all your relationships, in strained relationships, broken relationships, family, friends, coworkers, former friends, whatever it is. I think that we have a tendency humanly to say, all right, the debt's gone. You you hurt me somehow. You sinned against me. I'm not going to hold that against you. The the propitiation piece. I'm not angry anymore. But the the expiation piece, we're like, but this is going to redefine our relationship forever. I, I forgive you, but that's not the way God forgives us. God says, I'm, I'm going to pay the debt and I'm welcoming you back. You're not going to be defined forever by this thing that you did. It's not going to redefine our relationship. And so I want to challenge you in your families this week. I want to challenge you in your friendships. I want to challenge you to, to pray and look into your past and examine your heart and ask where are places that I need to show the type of forgiveness and love and mercy and grace that you have shown me. And maybe some of you, by the way, I assumed that first that maybe some of you are still holding debt over people's heads. And you need to look at them and you just need to say, I'm not going to ask you to pay it. I'll pay it for you. 
I'll do the hard work of accepting that, yes, you hurt me, and I'll forgive you. You don't have to pay this to be made right with me because Jesus pays it all. So maybe some of you need to let go of the debt and not hold it over their heads. And then maybe some of you need to quit holding them at arm's length. And you need to say you're not cast away forever. That's not going to define you or our relationship forever. Because this is what God has done for us in Jesus. And so if you want to take your juice and your bread, you know, there's two different lids here. And I'll give you a long time to get them open because it's always hard for me. told you not to keep these concepts separated to bring them back together in Jesus and I want you to see them right here when Jesus body was broken this is the punishment that you deserved this is propitiation satisfying the just punishment of God the wrath of God against sin broken in your place a substitute taking your punishment paying your price when Jesus' blood was shed, he had told the disciples the night before, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, to wash away your sins, to cleanse you, to remove your impurity, to remove your stain, expiation. The body of Jesus broken to pay your price, to pay your debt, the blood of Jesus shed to take away your sin, to make you clean, holy, able to come into the presence of God anywhere, anytime, because of Jesus. He was broken so that you can be made whole. His blood was shed so that your sin can be washed away. Do this in remembrance of him. together and Keith and the worship team are going to lead us and I hope your heart is stirred to worship Jesus to thank the Father for sending the Son to praise Him for the work that He has done and to really believe this and to be moved to make this known to make Him known so I'm going to pray that for us and we're going to worship together let's pray Father thank you for Jesus Thank you when the price was more than we could bear to pay. That you did something about it. That you stepped in and you sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice and the substitute, the propitiation who would satisfy you, who would meet the demands of justice in our place, who would pay the debt that we owe and then who would take our sin on himself and remove it from us and be cast away from you so that we don't have to be. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we draw near to you now with a clean conscience, 
and with new hearts as gifts from you and we thank you and we praise your name. Transform our hearts and our lives and this church by the gospel truth of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. May we see it this morning, Father. Open our eyes spiritually. May we see it in a fresh and new way and be consumed all over again with love and worship and faith in you and in your work. You are all of our hope and you are our only hope. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.